Welcome back. My name's Pete. Together with my wife, B, we lead the church here at KXC. If we've not met before, great to meet you, albeit virtually. We're going to jump right into our series on James. But before we actually unpack the text, we're going to listen to the text. So we're going to go to the West Zoom gathering West Side, where I am joined by Geddy, who's going to read from James chapter two. Great to see you, Geddy. How are you doing? Hello. I'm good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, doing good. So over to you for James chapter 2. I can't remember the verses, but you'll read them for us. Absolutely. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Amen. Thank you so much, Kelly. Now, I've just heard, literally, as you were giving the reading, that it's your birthday today. Is that correct? Yeah. There we go. Can we give it like... We won't sing the whole song, but happy birthday, mate. I hope you have a cracking day. And those in the West Side Zoom, you might want to send some birthday wishes. If you just put your email address in the chat function, we'll make sure that presents and, you know, gifts are sent across to you. Oh, amazing. Um, Obviously joking, mate. Thank you so much for that. (laughs) Oh, brilliant. So fantastic. This is such a fascinating moment. And we're in the book of James looking at saving faith. What does faith look like in a cultural crisis? Now, remember, James is writing this letter to the church in Jerusalem that are facing a crisis. Huge persecution of the church, but also a famine was sweeping through Jerusalem. The church was on its knees. Now, we find ourselves in a cultural crisis. A number of my friends have been sending me articles. I don't know whether they're trying to encourage me, but you can see hopefully some of them on the screen. Can the Church of England survive COVID? Question mark. Holy relic. What will be left of the Church of England after the pandemic? This is Tom Holland, the brilliant writer and historian. He says this, the risk for the churches is that they come to seem like an eccentric and not very important sub-department of the welfare state. But if the church is going to play a distinctive role, 
goal, that is inadequate. The point must be to talk about the idea that there is a purpose to this, that there is a dimension that lies beyond the merely physical. All the stuff that traditionally churches have talked about, but which they now seem slightly embarrassed about. Lots of people are watching the church. How are they going to respond? Will they survive this moment? What does faith look like in a crisis? Now, a lot of theologians basically say of the book of James that it's an application of the Sermon on the Mount. That James is taking the teaching of his brother Jesus and saying, look, in a crisis, here's how we live out the Sermon on the Mount. So how do we shine in a moment of darkness? Like the candles that we've lit, what does it look like for the church to shine right now? Let's remind ourselves of these words of Jesus, who says, you are the light of the world. In other words, you need to shine. Like, don't put the light under a bowl. You're a town built on a hill and it cannot be hidden. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. What does it look like right now for us as the church when people are questioning, will we even get through this crisis? What does it look like to shine, to radiate saving faith? That's what the book of James is about. And we're going to look now at chapter 2. Now, in chapter two, we're on the edge of heresy. So if you're not sitting on the edge of your seat, you need to lean in. It's these verses that caused Martin Luther during the Reformation to say, look, we should basically rip out the book of James from our New Testament. Modern scholars have, have called it the junk mail of the New Testament, not because it's harmless, but because there's a virus in there, potentially heresy, and we need to be protected from it. So what is all this controversy about? What's all the tension about? And we looked at this in week one, where we basically said there seems to be tension between the teaching of the apostle Paul, who spoke about justification by faith, that we're not saved by our good deeds or moral behavior. We're saved by the grace of Jesus Christ demonstrated at the cross. So he says this, Galatians 2 verse 16, a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ or the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Both are in mind there. And then you've got the letter of James where he says, you see that a person is considered righteous, same Greek word for justified, by what they do and not by faith alone. And you can see why theologians through the ages have been like, ah! How do we resolve the tension? Well, we're going to try and do it. Here's how we resolve the tension. We recognize that the same language is being used in different contexts and therefore it has different meaning. Now, we're very familiar with this, right? Um, if I went to preach in a church in California, which I've done and very much enjoyed, and someone at the end of the talk came up to me and said, Pete, um, enjoy the talk. I love your pants. Now, I would be totally fine with that. I totally understand what they're saying, which is like the talk was decent, but what I really enjoyed was your choice of trousers. You look great. And I would be hugely encouraged by that. If in the context of London, someone came up to me and said, Pete, good talk, love your pants. Um, it would be an incredibly awkward moment. It's a pastoral conversation, right? And not an easy one. Um, so we know same word, different context, different meaning. Let's give another silly example then. In Romania, if you go to the shop and order a tin of crap, this is what you're really talking about. Um, the word crap in Romania is our word for carp, just swapping the R and the A around. So a tin of crap is a tin of fish paste. Now, if you do the other journey, if you come from Romania, 
Romania to England and order a tin of crap, you're going to be bitterly disappointed and slightly alarmed. Silly example, but you get the point. Same word, different context, different meaning. Now, let's just give a theological example then of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now, the very same writer in a different letter says this, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in them. Like what? Like seems like total contradiction. And yet in one John, um, John is basically talking about the world as the powers and principalities that govern the brokenness that we see all around us. He talks about the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. Yet in John 3.16, he's talking about God's created order, that the creation that God said, that's really good. He loves it so much that he wants to take on human flesh to redeem it. Same word, different context, different meaning. And that's exactly what's happening here as we compare the teaching of Paul with the teaching of James. They're both talking about works, but they mean different things. So let's briefly look at Paul. What's he talking about? Well, when he talks about works he's really talking about works of the law more specifically he's talking about circumcision and dietary food laws what you can and can't eat and what festivals religious festivals you observe and Paul's basically saying that stuff it cannot justify you it cannot save you it might be good but it doesn't have the power to save or depending on how you interpret Paul it's not the badge of membership for the people of God it's not the symbol that says you belong to the family of God. So that's what Paul's talking about. But when you turn to James, James is comparing living faith with dead faith. So when he talks about works, he's not talking about works of the law. In other words, circumcision and food laws. He's talking about the fruit of faith when faith becomes action. He's basically saying, look, there's a difference between orthodoxy, which is right belief, and orthopraxy, which is right living, right behavior. I mean, let's quote him. Verse 19, he says to the church in Jerusalem, you believe there's one God and you can imagine the recipients of the letter nodding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We believe there is one God. And just as they're nodding, he sort of breaks the moment and says, yeah, but even the demons believe that. Like even the demons believe like they have right doctrine. Right doctrine is not enough. What we need is right doctrine to manifest itself in right behavior. And he talks about Abraham. And what does he say of Abraham? He says his faith was made complete by what he did. We don't commend Abraham just that he had right doctrine, right belief. We commend him because he actually acted on those beliefs and it was credited to him as righteousness. The other example is Rahab, the prostitute that helped out the spies and enabled them to enter the promised land. Here's the incredible thing about Rahab. In Matthew's gospel, Matthew provides a genealogy of Jesus, which is kind of the credentials for him being the Messiah. And Rahab is named in that ancestral line. In the context of the first century, that would have been like mind-boggling, like, oh my goodness, Matthew, you're trying to provide sort of credentials for the Messiah, and you've named a woman in his genealogy, which in the first century would have been like scandalous, but more than that, you've named a prostitute. But do you know what Matthew's doing? He's trying to honor Rahab as a hero of the faith. Like her faith led to action. That action enabled Israel to enter the land, but more than that, through her 
actions. We have the genealogy that leads to the Messiah. Without the faithfulness of Rahab, there wouldn't be Jesus. What a beautiful way to honor this hero of the faith, an outcast of her time, but a hero in the story of the kingdom of God. Aren't you grateful that Rahab didn't just have intellectual belief, but her belief manifested itself in right action. What we're really talking about here is the difference between believers and followers. Like belief is not enough. Belief needs to become following. And that happens through obedience. When we actually step out and obey. Jesus said, if you love me, then you'll believe all the right things. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. He said, if you love me, you'll obey what I commanded. That's what James is talking about. So how do we resolve this tension? And the answer is the way to resolve the tension is to recognize there isn't actually any tension. The two are furiously agreeing. So let me give you some examples. This is Galatians 5 verse 6. Paul says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, the works of the law, have any value. Like, leave it behind. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love, these actions of love. It's exactly what James is talking about. Here's another example. Ephesians 2, Paul says, it's by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. In other words, we're saved not by good works, but for good works. Paul and James, they're not enemies. They're not disagreeing. There is no tension. They're both agreeing. They're both celebrating salvation by grace, but this grace enables us to participate in the purposes of God. So if salvation leads to passivity, doing nothing, it's dead faith useless but also if salvation leads to hyperactivity maybe we need to hear this more often than not that's also dead faith a lot of the hyperactivity frenetic activity of the church and I'm not pointing fingers right now because this has been some of my story isn't actually rooted in our faith but in the absence of faith in other words it's functional atheism I don't believe God's going to show up and break through so I'm going to work incredibly hard in my own strength to try and get to the same outcome some of the hyperactivity we see in the church right now points to the absence of faith not high levels of faith so salvation that leads to passivity dead faith salvation that leads to hyperactivity dead faith what are we really looking for is salvation that leads to participation in the purposes of God and here you'll see um, the journey of participation God's being shapes God's doing shapes our being shapes our doing the mission of God starts with the character and nature of God and then all of God's activity is an overflow of who he is it's an overflow of his nature we might call that saving faith faithfulness God being faithful to his promises and that faithfulness means he acts towards us right he takes on flesh in the person of Jesus he lives for us he dies for us he rises to new life and invites us to experience the everlasting life that's found in him but I'm so grateful that God actually his, his saving faithfulness became action because it's through that action that we know his character and nature that's been revealed to us in Jesus. So God's doing, his activity is what brings salvation to us. 
um, his life, his death, his resurrection are the means by which we're reconciled to God and saved. And through that, we become, in the words of Paul, a new creation, a whole new being. And from the overflow of that new identity, we begin to act in the world. You might put it like this, that the saving faithfulness of God that moves him to action, that leads to our salvation and our salvation, not by good works, but for good works, motivates saving faith, our faith that moves us to action. And through that, we participate in the redemptive purposes of God. That's what the church is meant to be engaged in right now. So back to this question, saving faith in a time of crisis, how can we as the church like shine brightly in the midst of the darkness that surrounds us? I'm going to land with three quick thoughts. These three thoughts are present in the book of James, but it's also what I believe the spirit is wanting to say to the church right now. Um, Number one is that presence trumps progress. Presence trumps progress. We are to be a people marked by the presence of God. This is, you know, the the example of, of Moses in the wilderness where he says, God, if your presence doesn't go with us, there's no point in us going to the promised land. What else will distinguish us from the rest of the peoples on the face of the earth apart from your presence? He actually says, we'd rather be in the wilderness with you than in the promised land without you because your presence is everything, right? Now, so much of our activity, we leave the presence of God behind. But right now, our priority is to be a people marked out by the presence of God. Progress devoid of presence leads to exhaustion, right? And again, I'm not pointing fingers. So often in lockdown, I've got distracted and I've tried to do loads of different things that I think are going to bear fruit. And it's led to, you know, constant exhaustion. And I realize this moment is about the presence of Jesus, hosting the presence of God. Listen to these words then, John 15, as as Jesus says, like, I'm the vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it'll be even more fruitful. I'm the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Just pause there. Take that in. This is Jesus saying, if you're disconnected from my presence, you're not going to achieve anything. Lasting for the kingdom of God. Wasting time. Being inactive in my presence. That's the path to fruitfulness right if we're to be fruitful right now in this incredibly challenging season we need to prioritize the presence of God abiding in the vine so we're to be a church marked out by presence secondly we are to be a church marked out by purity this is what James constantly comes back to a church that's being refined so that it can be pure and therefore be like salt to the earth and light to the world around Now, again, I said that the book of James is like an application of the Sermon on the Mount for a church in crisis. Now, listen to Jesus teaching then in the Sermon on the Mount, talking to essentially the Pharisees that were prioritizing popularity to purity. He says this. So when you give to the needy, notice the when, not if you give to the needy, because saving faith means you will. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. 
What is their reward? And the answer is 10 minutes of feeling great about yourself. You know, it's that moment when someone retweets and you're like, hang on a minute, I'm becoming a somebody. This is really exciting. You have a moment, but it doesn't really last and it has no impact. Jesus says, if you want to give in such a way that you get that like buzz, fine. But it will make no difference when it comes to the, the pushing forward of the kingdom purposes. Then he gives another example. And when you pray, not if you pray, by the way. Like saving faith means we turn to God independence through prayer. So when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. And what was the reward? For 10 minutes, they felt great. And other people said, have you seen that guy pray? Unbelievable. Some of the words he was dropping, you know, and all of that kind of stuff. And Jesus says, like, it, it doesn't really have any impact. You feel good for a moment, but you're missing out. Another example, when you fast, not if you fast, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. For five or 10 minutes, they feel great about life. But Jesus says, no, you're missing the point. There is another way and it's the way of purity it's often hidden but it leads to an eternal reward in other words the kingdom of God breaking in now and lasting for eternity and that brings fruit that can be enjoyed by many not just a hit for one person but fruit to be enjoyed by many so often we've, we've chosen popularity in the church, not just in the world, in the church. We thought, how can we be really culturally relevant? How can society love us and think so much of us? And we've realized we've traded purity for popularity. Listen to these words. Anna, last week, I think, quoted from this article, but this is from the American Spectator, talking about how celebrity culture has been infiltrating the church. And the writer says this, I'm not religion, so it's not my place to dictate to Christians what they should and should not believe. Still, if someone has a faith worth following, notice the distinction between what they believe and how they actually live, in other words, saving faith. If someone has a saving faith worth following, I feel that their beliefs should make me feel uncomfortable for not doing so. If they share 90% of my lifestyle and values, then there's nothing especially inspiring about them. Instead of making me want to become more like them, it looks very much as if they want to become more like me. This is people outside the church saying to the church, stop trying to be like us. We want you to be a city on a hill, something that we aspire to, something that we long for. But if you're longing to be more like us, then you're not fit for purpose. It's like salt that loses saltiness. It's like the light that's put under a bowl. I mean, these, these are people saying, we want you to be the church. We want your ethics to look different to the ethics that surround us sexually and in every way. So often we see in the church, our ethics is just the same and it's not an inspiration. It's not what it means to really be the followers of Jesus in a time like this. Listen to these words. Alan Scott said this, pursuit of cultural relevance at a time of cultural decay equates to voting for death. And, and what I really want to say to the family at KXC is, please, can we choose life? God says this in Deuteronomy 30. I've set before you today, you know, a path that leads to death and a path that leads to life. I'm asking you, please choose life. And we choose life by saying purity trumps popularity. OK, third thing then is mercy triumphs over judgment. 
We live at a time, it's exhausting, isn't it, where everyone's pointing fingers. He's an idiot. She's, you know, a heretic. What kind of leader are they? And, and constantly pointing fingers at others. Listen to this text, because this text is, is pretty intense, right? This is Isaiah chapter 5. Um, where Isaiah is announcing judgment. This is before Isaiah 6, obviously, um, but it's before his commissioning, the beginning of his ministry. And just listen to the judgment then. Listen to the language. Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. In other words, greed. Woe to the greedy. Woe to those who rise early in the morning and run after their drinks, who stay up late at night until they are inflamed with wine. Woe to those who draw sin along with cords of deceit. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. In other words, arrogant. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and Champions at mixing drinks. You've got to love that, haven't you? I mean, that does sound brilliant. I mean, it's obviously really, really bad, but it's quite funny language. Champions at mixing drinks. Um, can you notice the language? Isaiah is basically announcing judgment, pointing fingers. Woe are you. Woe are you. Woe is that person. That person's a complete moron. Constantly announcing judgment. And then, one chapter later, he encounters God. Listen to what happens. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And what's his response? He basically says, woe is me. Like, I, I can't point fingers anymore. I've seen God, and I've experienced even just a, a glimpse of his glory, and I can't point fingers in judgment because I need mercy. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. This is the beginning of his ministry, right? He falls to his knees and he says, like, here I am, God, send me. I'll go wherever you want to take me. And he's anointed to be a prophet who does actually announce judgment. But beyond the judgment, he announces restoration and he announces mercy because mercy triumphs over judgment. If you spend good chunks of your day on social media slagging people off, I just want to say stop it. That isn't the way of Jesus and it isn't the way of the kingdom. Listen to these words in, in Matthew, um, Matthew 7, again, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Like, I find that terrifying. That forces me to up my game on social media, right? Um, listen to these words. This is James 2. James echoing the words of his brother. James says, judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful Mercy triumphs over judgment, right? I just want to call KXC to be counterculture in a moment like this and to display mercy. I've had a couple of moments in the last two weeks where I felt like I've encountered God and I can tell you in that moment I wasn't pointing fingers. I was basically saying, God, forgive me for the way I haven't been the husband that you want me to be and forgive me for not being the father you've called me to be and forgive me when I haven't been the leader that you've called me to be. I'm so sorry. I'm on my knees saying, Lord, refine me, purify me and use me however you want to use me. In the presence of God, you stop pointing fingers, right? This is the church we are being called to be in this moment, marked out by 
presence, marked out by purity, marked out by mercy. This is the criticism of the prophets to the nation of Israel, that they've become judgmental. They've stopped showing mercy to the poor and the vulnerable in their community. You've got passages like Amos 5 where God says, I'm not even listening to your worship music anymore. Like, away with the noise of your songs. What I'm really interested in is justice flowing like a river and righteousness flowing like a never-failing stream. You've got passages like Micah 6, 8, where the prophet Micah says, what does the Lord require of us to act justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God? It's basically saying, If you want to become merciful, you need to encounter God where you realize I need to receive mercy. And as I'm filled with the mercy of God, I become merciful. And boy, does the church need to be a church of mercy right now. The need is so great. So many are grieving. So many are terrified. So many are stuck in cycles of poverty. It's a time for the church to rise up and demonstrate mercy, presence, purity, Mercy. All these people asking the question, will the Church of England or the wider church, will they even get through the crisis? Maybe with a little bit of hope. Maybe they won't. Maybe they won't. But what if actually the church rises up at a time like this with saving faith, full of the presence of God, pursuing purity, demonstrating mercy, then we'll be a light, right? We'll be the light of the world and people will be drawn to the light. They always are in darkness. Let me close with this story then. Um, I've told this story at KXC before, um, but essentially this is what took place in the Hebridean revival. They were experiencing crisis too. So this is just after the Second World War. Many people on the island um, had lost loved ones in in the Great War. Um, The church was on its knees, essentially dead faith. But a few of them started praying. Two old ladies, Peggy and Christine Smith, and then others began to join them. And then there's this one turning point in the revival. I just want you to listen to the language and notice the heartbeat behind the prayer. So they've been having these prayer nights, and then it says this in, in one of the accounts. Until one night, now this is what I'm anxious for you to get hold of. One night, they were kneeling there in the barn, pleading this promise you know, from from Isaiah. I will pour water on him that is thirsty, floods upon the dry ground. When one young man, a deacon in the church, got up and read Psalm 24. Who shall ascend the hill of God? Who shall stand in his holy place? He that has clean hands and a pure heart, who's not lifted up his soul unto vanity or sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing, not a blessing, but the blessing of the Lord. And then that young man closed his Bible and looking down at the minister and the other office bearers, he said this, maybe crude words, prepare yourself, but perhaps not so crude in our Gaelic language. He said, it seems to me to be so much humbug, apologies for those listening, offended by that, so much humbug to be praying as we are praying, to be waiting as we are waiting, if we ourselves are not rightly related to God. And then he lifted up his two hands, and I'm telling you, just as the minister told me it happened, he lifted his two hands and prayed, God, are my hands clean? Is my heart pure? He's not pointing any fingers at that point. He's not saying, woe is you, woe is you, woe is you. He's saying, woe is me, are my hands clean? Is my heart pure? He got no further. That young man fell onto his knees and then into a trance. Now, don't ask me to explain this because I can't. He fell into a trance and is now lying on the floor of the barn. And in the same 
And in the words of the minister, at that moment, he and his office bearers were gripped by the conviction that a God-sent revival must be related to holiness, must ever be related to godliness. Are my hands clean? Is my heart pure? The man that God will trust with, with revival or woman that God will trust with revival, that is the condition. When that happened in the barn, the power of God swept into the parish and an awareness of God gripped the whole community such as hadn't been known for over 100 years. An awareness of God, that's revival, that's revival. And on the following day, the looms were silent. Little work was done on the farms as men and women gave themselves to thinking on eternal things gripped by eternal realities. It's worth reading the history books on the Hebridean revival. It is unbelievable what took place. Thousands coming to, to faith, a holiness movement. How did it begin? One young guy in the presence of God saying, I choose purity over popularity. I choose holiness over cultural relevance. Lord, have mercy on me. God turned up in power. Like, don't you long for the same? Lord, we've heard of your fame and we stand in awe of your deeds. Repeat them in our day, in our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. 